Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In this episode, visit to one of the nation's premier photography museums, the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Fine Art Photography Podcast. It's been a while since my last episode, partly because I've been traveling, and as part of those travels, I made a visit to the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, which includes the mansion of the late George Eastman, founder of the Eastman Kodak Company. The George Eastman Museum is the nation's oldest museum dedicated to photography. By the way, if you're interested in joining me on my various road trips and photo journeys, you can find me on YouTube where I Document the more interesting locations. Search for Keith Thoughts on Photography and hit the subscribe button and the bell over there. I'll be uploading several videos from my recent journeys through New England and New York State. Now, I confess I didn't know much about the man behind the iconic Kodak brand. George Eastman was born in 1854 on a farm near Waterville, New York. He grew up in modest circumstances, and when his father's health became poor, the family left the farm and moved into Rochester. Now, the city of Rochester was one of the first American boom towns, and George began getting his first formal schooling. And after his father died from an illness in 1862, George's mother paid for the school by renting rooms to boarders. One of George's older sisters died in 1870, and he left school to start working. He was about 15 years old, with only a handful of years of formal education. Despite his modest start, within 10 years, in the year 1880, George had his first patent. The patent application starts with this statement. To all whom it may concern, be it known that I, George Eastman of Rochester, New York, have invented an improved process of preparing gelatin dry plates for use in photography. Then he goes on to say, quote, In the preparation of gelatin dry plates, great difficulty has heretofore been encountered in spreading the gelatin emulsion over the glass. This has ordinarily been accomplished by a glass rod, the action of which was assisted by inclining in different directions causing the emulsion to flow toward the edges. It has been found difficult by this means to cover the margins of the glass or to secure an even coating on the whole surface, while the process of coating the plates in this way was necessarily slow, tedious, and therefore expensive. By my improved process, plates are covered with perfectly uniform coating of gelatin emulsion, extending entirely out to the edges of the plate, and this result is accomplished very much more rapidly than inferior plates are produced by the old method. End quote. This was his first of five patents, all related to photography. His innovations revolutionized photography and helped to make it a popular pastime among ordinary people. Eastman and the Eastman Kodak brand were wildly successful, making Eastman a very wealthy man. He became a philanthropist, donating hundreds of millions of dollars to educational institutions, medical facilities, and the arts. Eastman never married and was known for following a strict decorum of behavior, even amongst friends. It's said that he couldn't stop crying after the death of his mother, with whom he had been very close, and this was an unusual breakdown in his self-control. I got the impression that he was a very businesslike and succinct person, even to the end. In the mansion, you can see a facsimile of a suicide note, an oversized piece of paper with a handwritten scrawl in black ink in the following words. To my friends, my work is done. Why wait? G.E. His suicide note reads like a brief dictation to a secretary about canceling a meeting or something. 
By the way, he died by shooting himself in the heart after a few years of apparently quite intense spinal pain and increasing loss of mobility. That was in 1932 when Eastman was 77 years of age. Now that I've given some backstory on Eastman's life, let's discuss what it's like to visit his museum and mansion, which are separate buildings now adjoined. The fabulous mansion built in 1905 and the museum opened in 1949. Let me address one thing up front. For those of you in the audience who are like me, suffering from a parking phobia, when I decide to go someplace, my first thought is, that sounds good, but how's the parking? The George Eastman Museum has plenty of space in its own dedicated parking lot, and parking is free. I went on a Saturday morning, and only a few dozen spaces were taken out of a very large lot, so I don't think you'll have any trouble parking there unless you go during a major event. The museum complex consists of the exhibition spaces, the 500-seat Dryden Theater, and the Georgian Revival-style mansion on a 10-acre lot that also includes beautiful gardens, which you can also visit. There's also a cafe where I ate lunch consisting of a salad and a sandwich, and it was quite good. Now, the Eastman Museum had been on my bucket list for several years because they have some of the most extensive collections of antique photographs in the country. The museum is a leader in the conservation of prints and film. The museum's collections include more than 400,000 photographs and negatives dating from the invention of photography to now and they have a large collection of antique and important cameras. So I'll say, I came away from my visit somewhat disappointed by the amount of early collections that I actually got to see. The exhibition space contains three galleries that I saw, one very large and beautiful space, the one that held a huge show by fine art photographer B. Nettles. There's another smaller one, but still ample, that had another contemporary fine art photography show. Then there's what appeared to be the smallest space, dedicated to showing a rotating selection of photographs and cameras from the permanent collection. In that room, they change out the photographs four times per year and the cameras once per year. If it was up to me, all the exhibition space would be dedicated to showing the museum's spectacular historic collections. I'm all for showing contemporary work, believe me, that's important. But this museum has a vast and unique collection of important historic images that can be seen nowhere else, and they're kept locked away in climate-controlled vaults. Out of 400,000 items, I saw a few dozen old cameras and less than two dozen prints. Now, don't misunderstand me. It was well worth the $18 price of admission and the efforts involved in going to Rochester, but I had hoped for more. So what's it like going to the museum? Well, after parking, you enter through the modern museum entrance where you can buy or validate your pre-purchased tickets. Then you step to the left where you walk past the museum gift shop and the new cafe. At this point, you can turn left to go down to the exhibition spaces or you can turn right to go to the mansion. I opted for the exhibitions first. I breezed through the B. Nettles show, which was quite nice, but as I said, the historic materials were really my primary interest. I stopped in the corridor to admire several very historic machines used in the evolution of the motion picture, from a kinetoscope invented by Edison to a 1980s Panaflex motion picture camera. There is a large wall display of dye samples that were tested for the invention of the Technicolor movie process. It's a colorful wall, perfect for an Instagram moment. Then I parted the glass doors into the dimly lit room where the historic items were displayed. The photographs gleamed like jewels against the black walls. The room was lined with photographs by a variety of photographers, some famous, some not so famous, covering a variety of processes. There's a daguerreotype, an ambrotype, which is imaged onto the back of a piece of glass. There were stereographs. There's a book of albumin prints from studio photographs of Canadian hunters modeled to look like they're actually hunting in the wilderness. There are prints from Elliot Erwitt, Aaron Siskind, Gordon Parks, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Helen Levitt, Louis Hine, and Eugene Adjet. Can you believe that lineup? There are also vintage black-and-white vernacular snapshots made with the Kodak cameras in the 1940s. 
In the center of the room are many museum cases filled corner to corner with historic cameras. There was a case filled with Nikons from every era of photography. There was a case filled with speed graphic press cameras. Those were used by press photographers in the 40s and 50s. One table holds a variety of Kodak cameras, including retinas, brownies, and folding cameras. There was even a NASA Lunar Observer photographic subsystem from 1967. Some of these cameras were owned by notable photographers. One camera had belonged to Alfred Stieglitz and was donated by Georgia O'Keeffe to the museum. Another used by Associated Press photographer Joe Rosenthal may have been used to shoot the iconic photo of soldiers raising the U.S. flag at Iwo Jima. It's a small room, but I spent a lot of time in there. And can you believe not a single person entered the room the entire time I was in there? I had that space all to myself. No struggling with a crowd to get a look at the prints here. Now, because the images and cameras on display are rotated out, future visitors will see something different than I saw. After exiting that gallery, I stopped in the airy and sunlit cafe to eat lunch. It cost about $15, and it was very good. I had a sandwich, a side salad, and some hibiscus iced tea. From the cafe, I continued down the window-lined corridor to the mansion. This house is huge, 35,000 square feet. Again, inside the house, I was free to roam around without a guide, room to room, upstairs and downstairs. I saw one security person and only a few other visitors, all that to say that it was not crowded. On the upstairs level, several rooms contained displays of more antique cameras, with one case holding all the materials needed to make daguerreotypes. Another case displayed many of Eastman's personal papers, including the aforementioned facsimile of his suicide note. At the far end of one corridor upstairs in the mansion is a secure door leading to the historic collections, which are available to academics and researchers. After walking through the house, I went outside to walk through the lush gardens. All in all, a terrific visit. Highly recommended to fellow photo nerds. By the way, this was my first visit to Rochester, New York, and I went downtown early in the morning to walk around with my camera while waiting for the museum to open. I found some interesting historical architectural details to shoot. And did you know there's a full-blown rushing waterfall in downtown Rochester? You can walk across a pedestrian bridge just below High Falls, that's the name of the waterfalls, and it's a great photo op with the falls in downtown in view. That's all I've got for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again real soon. <laughs>